Hello and welcome to the Golden Age of Islam. And in this episode, we reach the truly Golden Age, which is considered by most to be the Abbasid Caliphate, an empire that lasted for 500 years as the most powerful on earth, and whose capital, Baghdad, was immortalized in the famous Arabian Nights tales. This was the center of learning, creativity, and science, and it bridged a gap between the Roman Empire and the Renaissance, those dark ages of Western history. By the time the Abbasid Caliphate fell to the destruction of the Mongols, Europe was beginning to emerge from its darkness with the help of science and learning acquired from the Arabs. Well, as you might expect, this story is more than a bit oversimplified. Abbasid power was often in name only, and this nominal empire, for much of its history, was really just a patchwork of essentially independent, warring states. But the illusion of the great Muslim empire was often almost as good as the real thing. Cultural achievements still flourished, even in times of turmoil when the empire was falling apart, and these were often accomplished not always by Muslims, and most often not by Arabs, but were nonetheless still inspired by this great caliphate. So, after patiently tracing the background in the path to the Golden Age for several weeks, now we arrive at the founding of the great caliphate, and we begin to enter the Golden Age of Islam. So please stay with us. Well, last time we talked about the Umayyad Caliphate, which we said was a great conquering caliphate, which established the largest empire in history up to that point, which conquered everything from Spain all the way to almost to the borders of China. Well, today we're going to talk about the so-called Abbasid Revolution that brought down the Umayyad Caliphate. And as it turned out, the Umayyads lasted almost exactly a century. Now, while we talk about it as a revolution, in reality what's significant is really how much continued from one caliphate to the next. Some history books out there combine this entire period and only mention that the capital of the Islamic Empire moved from Damascus to Baghdad. Well, in a way, there's a lot of sense to that. There is a lot of continuity. Yes, there was political change. And there, we're going to talk about some very real differences in these two empires. But what's most important is that the Abbasids continued on the groundwork, which was laid by the Umayyads, and really developed from that great military, political, powerful empire, the cultural and intellectual glories that would go on to make this the Golden Age. Well, as we discussed before, the Umayyad Caliphate was extremely powerful. But as we also saw, internally it experienced frequent and sometimes constant rebellions. Now, what was really impressive was the skill of Umayyad leaders, like Muawiyah, for example, to overcome these rebellions. By the end of its first century, the major complaint against the Umayyads was that they privileged their own clan above all others, and in a more general sense, they privileged Arabs from their area, from the Hejaz, what is nowadays Saudi Arabia. The non-Arab Muslims felt like second-class citizens in this empire, and this became significant because as the empire had grown, they were actually a majority. 
Well, amongst those groups, the most powerful certainly were the Persians in the largely Persian elite from the Khorasan region, which is located in what is today northern uh, Iran, Afghanistan, Central Asia. This was the area of the entire world that the Muslims had the most difficulty in conquering, and it remained an area that was very difficult for them to control. And so it's not too much of a surprise that that is where the rebellion against the Umayyads would begin. Meanwhile, the Umayyads continued to face opposition for not being sufficiently religious or pious in the eyes of their opponents. To their opponents, they had become like secular kings, and that was meant as an insult to say they were like any other kingdom, the kingdoms of the pagans. And this again stirred up the idea that the Caliphate rightly belonged with the Hashemite clan of the Prophet. Of course, we talked about the Shia before and the belief that the uh, Caliphate should have passed through the lineage of the Prophet. This might seem like a somewhat indirect conclusion to make, but again, by seeing the Umayyads acting what they considered to be decadently, basically because they had become very rich and powerful, this again strengthened their claim that the Caliphate should return to the Hashemite clan of the Prophet. And within that group, there was a secret organization which was known as the Hashemiya, which had their base in the city of Kufa in southern Iraq. And Kufa, you may remember, is where the Caliph Ali had established his capital. And it had become an important city for the, for the Shia. And it was a major center of anti-Umayyad sentiment, which had rebelled several times. Of course, powerful people often have enemies, but what you certainly don't want is for your enemies to get together, which is what happened here. The opposing factions came together to overthrow the Umayyads, and so the Kufa-based rebels found a religious lineage they needed in a person named Muhammad ibn Ali. Now, he was a descendant of the Prophet's paternal uncle Abbas, which is where the name Abbasid would come from the name of this caliphate. The military power came from the Persian general Abu Muslim, who had seized power in Khorasan and led his forces down into Iraq. He decisively defeated a much larger Umayyad army under the Caliph Marwan II in 750. Now, even though we're talking about a pretty small part of a very large empire, this was really the death knell for the Umayyads because, of course, Syria was their power base. And so with the army of the Caliph defeated at this time, Abu Muslim was able to go on and capture Damascus, which was the capital. They chased Marwan all the way to Egypt and killed him there. So this was not some small rebellion. Well, after this victory... The victorious forces gathered in Kufa to establish a new leadership based in the family of the Prophet. Now, if what I've described so far sounds to you like a Shiite victory, then you're not alone. That's the way the Shiites saw it as well. But as often happens in history, it's one thing to agree on an enemy that you want to defeat. It's a much different thing to agree on what to do after that point. So we essentially have three different parties here. We have, of course, the Shia, who have been opposed to the Umayyads from the very beginning and see this as an opportunity to return the leadership to the family of Ali. We have the military from Khorasan, who is really the power behind this, led by Abu Muslim. 
And we have the Abbasid family, that family descended from the uncle of the prophet, who are really the instigators and organizers of this thing. Well, even to this day, historians debate whether the Abbasids duped their allies or whether this was a genuine alliance that just couldn't agree. Whether the Abbasid family really did play their allies or not, the result was pretty much the same. Of course, the Shiites wanted a caliph who was closer to the lineage of Ali, but the Khorasani military pledged their allegiance to the family of the Abbasids. The first caliph was Abu al-Abbas ibn Muhammad, and he started a trend which would be followed by other caliphs, which was to take on a laqab, which literally is like a nickname or an honorific name for which they would be known. And part of the reason they did that was to separate themselves from the Umayyads who just ruled under their own names, like Omar, uh, Muawiyah, or Marwan. Well, the first of the Abbasid caliphs would be known by the name al-Safah, which means the one who sheds blood. And what would happen in the subsequent years would show that he definitely earned that name. So the first ones who found themselves on the outs were the Shia. It took some time for their version of the history to develop, but definitely this is seen in Shia history as yet another betrayal. They imagined that they were lending their support to help bring the caliphate back to the house of Ali, but it turns out that the Abbasids established another hereditary dynasty within their own family, similar to what the Umayyads had done and there would soon be tension and an outright fighting uh, between the Shia and the Abbasids. The next one to fall would be Abu Muslim, the military power behind the victory. He was called to the Caliph and killed, and his troops essentially bought off with gifts of gold and power. And this was really a master stroke because, remember, again, he is the power behind the victory, but the Caliph was able to get rid of him as a leader and essentially buy off the loyalty of his troops. And the Khorasani troops would become the backbone behind the throne of the Caliphate. So when we started out with these three different factions after overthrowing the Umayyads, the Abbasid family might seem like the least powerful or the least likely to come out on top, but that's essentially what happened. Well, El Safah ruled for only four years before he died of smallpox, but his reign was still very significant. He moved the caliphate to his power center in Kufa, and this marked a permanent realignment of power towards Persia in the east. And this is more than just moving the, the caliphate a few hundred miles. Remember, Damascus is the center of Syria, and Syria was part of the Byzantine Empire, and the Umayyads had relied heavily on Syrians, especially uh, Syrian Christians, and on Byzantine style of ruling. Well, this really marks the dominance of Persian culture, Persian influence, and the role of Persian advisors in the caliphate. And it, of course, brings them closer to their power base in Khorasan, where the uh, Khorasani military can back up the caliph. Now, it was really the second Abbasid caliph, uh, the brother of al-Safah, who took the name al-Mansur, meaning the victorious, who really had a great vision to turn this into uh, a great empire. It's already the largest empire in the world, but he wanted to put this on a scale in, in history that was really unmatched. And this is where we get the idea of the golden age of Islamic civilization. 
and by any stretch, uh, El Mansur is still one of the greatest of the caliphs. Now, his greatest achievement has got to be seen as the establishment of the city of Baghdad as the capital of the new empire. Now, unlike the previous capitals before it, like Damascus, Kufa, and Medina, which were already established cities and already had a, a power base and a population, Baghdad was a new construction, and that was the way Al-Mansur wanted it to be. It was a planned city, and it was planned to be the greatest city that anyone had ever seen. And for centuries, it truly was. Uh, Al-Mansur chose the location very carefully. Well, he consulted with royal astrologers to make sure the location was auspicious. But more importantly, he chose a location near the historic Persian capital of Tesiphon, which in its own right had been the greatest city in the world at the time, but which also allied with the Abbasids' power base in Persia. And it was a definite nod to the glories of Persian civilization by placing it close to that. Additionally, Iraq was the richest province in the entire empire, and that was based on its agriculture. And of course, if you know ancient history, the agriculture of Mesopotamia is the beginning of uh, human civilization, and they still had an agricultural system in Iraq which was based on irrigation systems that were centuries old. This was not only a source of wealth, but it kept the area self-sufficient, meaning it, it couldn't easily be cut off. Of course, Baghdad is located on the major river routes of the Tigris and the Euphrates. This is the ancient term Mesopotamia, meaning between the two rivers, which meant it could be supplied by goods from the north and from the west, but it also gave it an outlet to the Persian Gulf and, I mean, essentially to the sea in the west, in the Indian Ocean in the eyes of the Arabs, was known as the Great Ocean. Of course, it's not the largest ocean in the world, but in their worldview, it, it essentially was. So this was a very strategic location, but Al-Mansur made the deliberate decision not to build up one of the existing cities, like Basra or Kufa, which were already there, but to build his own city. And, of course, he saw this city as the center of a world empire. Really, it would be the new center of the world. Remember, up to this time, the Islamic State has been expanding really without any bounds. And it seems to be on a path to essentially bring the world under domination. So he wanted this great capital to be the center of it. And as we mentioned last week, there was the concept of Dar es Salaam, like this world under the control of Islam being the world of peace. And so, accordingly, al-Mansur decided to name his new city Medinat as-Salam, the city of peace. Unfortunately, there happened to be a Persian village in the area known as Baghdad, which is not even an Arabic word, it's a Persian word. And as often happens, no matter what the caliph decided to call the place, people continue to call it by its old name. And so throughout history and up to this date, this greatest city of the Arabs is not even known by an Arab name, but it's known by a Persian name, Baghdad. In any case, El-Mansur spared no expense in building his city. And we have to say that uh, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, because although he went very heavy on the luxury and the grandeur, Al-Mansur was known personally to be a 
penny pincher, uh, and he was known to be a very tight administrator of the budget, even though he had this huge empire. In fact, he would take money out of his officials' salaries if he felt they went over budget on a project. So uh, when you know about government spending, it shows you what a great administrator this guy was. So it's really more accurate to say not that he spared no expense, but he, he demanded that this city be built to the, the highest standards. And what he had was access to the, the greatest craftsmen, the greatest engineers and scientific minds uh, in the world. And so they all came to Baghdad. This construction project was the, the largest in the world. It was so great and so elaborate that workers and artisans came from all over the world, not just from the Islamic empire, but from all over the world to work on it. It's kind of like when they're building a huge city, like when they were building Dubai. People came from all over the world to get in on this. Now famously, Baghdad was designed as a round city. And that's a very difficult shape to build in, and it's one that could only be done by design and by the fact that they had uh, excellent mathematicians at this time who could actually do that. I think laying it out by squares in a grid is one thing, but to do it with concentric circles that keep getting bigger uh, is um, much more difficult. And the city was very elaborately planned. There were different quadrants for different types of activities, the different circles for different levels of people of how close they could get to the, the khalif. And so this required some extensive planning. Now there was also a, a heritage here because the round design of cities came from Sassanid Persia. And much of the architecture was borrowed from Persian style. If we think of the characteristic domes, as you see as in classical pictures of what Baghdad is supposed to look like. Think of the cartoon Aladdin with all the with the domes. Those come from Persian models. And again, this is a nod to the Persians. Remember the power base, the, the military is Persian. And so again, Mansur is showing his, his loyalty. He's showing where his heart lies. In any case, this uh, round city had four gates each leading in one of the major geographic directions, and they were all named for the cities to which they headed. There was the Kufa Gate, the Khorasan Gate, and those were the two main power bases of the Abbasids, again. There was the Syrian Gate, which was the place they had conquered, and the Basra Gate, which is the main port. So by looking at these gates, they're reminding you of you know, who their power base is and who they've just defeated. Now, if this may conjure up images of the idea of the ancient city of Rome and all roads leading to Rome, the intended effect was definitely the same. At the center of the round city sat the official palace and the mosque complex, which was known as the Golden Gate. And this is where the caliph held his audiences. Even El-Mansur was known to preach the Friday sermon at the mosque. And he was, he was a very educated person, a very good speaker. And his daily audience, the people he met with daily, was said to include some 700 people. So we're not talking about a, a sort of a decadent king, a hands-off ruler. Uh, he was very heavily involved in the management of this empire, and he talked to people directly. Now, the caliph's residence was known as the Palace of Eternity which again is a pretty bold name to call something. They're not being subtle at all here. They want everyone to know this is the greatest city the world has ever seen because it's now the center of this new world empire which is going to last forever. Now the Khalif's family, which was very large, was also very well represented. 
So the male members of the family built their own very large palaces in the same sector of the city, which is on the, the east bank of the Tigris River. Other members became provincial governors and established their own courts in regional cities. So the court officials and the military leaders, they also built palaces of varying sizes, and they had uh, different districts of the round city in which they were allowed to build. So all of this was very carefully laid out. Unfortunately, as great as the round city was, the, the city grew tremendously. I mean, people were coming in from all over the world. I mean, this was, the, uh, this was like the New York, the Paris, the Washington, and Beijing of the world all rolled into one. Uh, and so the round portion of the city became like the inner city. This was your downtown Manhattan, let's say. And only the very rich and powerful lived within the round city walls. Well, as we kind of know from the Arabian Nights tales, the luxury that was on display in Baghdad was legendary. And in fact, it's really difficult to separate fact from fiction. So this idea we get of the, the harems with all this gold and, and finery, uh, this definitely is modeled after Baghdad. And in some cases in the Arabian Nights, it's explicitly identified as being from Baghdad. Of course, you build great cities and great palaces to let everyone know how powerful you are. And this is the idea. Uh, they could spend ridiculously in Baghdad on these luxury buildings because it was a way of showing that the empire they controlled was so large and, and so wealthy that they, they just had tons of money to do this with. Despite all the luxury in his capital, El-Mansur was actually a very pious and strict man. He lived a very uh, strict life. He didn't drink wine, although it was consumed in great quantities in Baghdad. It was famous for it. And more importantly, he recognized that corruption had essentially done in the Umayyads. And if the Abbasids were going to keep their hold on power and not be overthrown, they had to be effective administrators, and the caliph had to be seen as being uh, very serious, but at the same time had to provide all this luxury for his subjects. So he walked a very tight balance. Well, as we saw before, the development of a centralized bureaucracy had begun under the Umayyads, but it really took off in the Abbasid period. And part of this was because of the groundwork which had already been set, but another big part of it was the fact that the Abbasids inherited so much and adopted so much from the Persian Empire, which had a very strong and very well-organized bureaucracy. Like much else in history, this is going to prove to be one of the strengths and also one of the ultimate undoings of this empire. As you would imagine, a great capital that controlled so much power and so much influence and where one could make a fortune is going to become a place of a lot of politics and a lot of intrigues. And Baghdad was certainly no exception to that. We can look at the rise and fall of some of the key power holders of the time and we get a sense of how turbulent Abbasid society and politics was. Now, the office of the vizier, it's a wazir in Arabic, but it's where we get the term more famous from Persian of the grand vizier, which is seen somewhat as like a prime minister. This began in the Umayyad times and it was originally a secretary to the caliph, but you can imagine anyone who is the personal secretary to the caliph, is going to uh, adopt a lot of power. 
And it grew to become essentially like the chief of staff of the government or um, combining the powers of the, the prime minister and perhaps the foreign minister. And today, in fact, the word wazir in Arabic is used to refer to a government minister. Now, of course, if you look at folk tales like Aladdin, uh, the vizier is the evil scheming guy like Jafar. He's the one who's trying to undo Aladdin. But in reality, more often than not, the vizier was actually the person running the, the caliphate, as, particularly as the caliphs became less and less competent and less and less interested in actually running the government and more interested in living in luxury and having a good time. And what happened was that families of viziers would grow up in the palace, and they, they essentially became uh, dynasty holders. So for the early Abbasid caliphs, it was a Persian family known as the Barmakids from north, uh, northern Afghanistan. And the, the word actually refers to the hereditary custodian of an important Buddhist pilgrimage site in the area, which had been Buddhist at the time. And so we, what we see is we're already talking about people who, even uh, before they converted to Islam, had, knew how to connect themselves to power. And so they have been connected to a number of the ruling families of the region uh, in Afghanistan. They converted to Islam, and they supported the Abbasid Revolution. Remember, the Abbasid Revolution begins up in northeastern Iran, Afghanistan, uh, that area. Now, if it sounds like some shrewd political maneuvering, that's exactly what it was. There were two really great viziers in this family, and that was Khalid, and then later his son Yahya. And they dominated the politics under the early Abbasid caliphs. And in true intrigue fashion, they got their job by conspiring against the previous vizier and getting him thrown out. Now, they were not just into administration. Like the caliphs, they had a taste for luxury. They built grand palaces and had ostentatious shows of wealth, second only to the caliphs. And eventually, one of the reasons for the fall of this family is said to have been the amount that they spent on palaces to the extent that it would look like it was competing with the caliph. And so eventually the fifth caliph, Harun al-Rashid, who is probably the most famous of all the Abbasid caliphs, uh, eventually got tired of this family and for reasons that are not quite clear today, had them purged and punished. And so the point here is that although the viziers were enormously powerful and ran the empire and had tremendous luxury, they were still subject to the whims of the caliph, and they could lose their power entirely if the caliph felt that way. Now, this was a dangerous arrangement, of course, and so the eventual reduction of caliphs to figureheads under the control of viziers uh, could hardly come as something of a surprise. So sort of the situations we see in Aladdin and uh, the cartoons is not too far off. However, in the early years of the Abbasid period, the caliphs did hold ultimate power. Now, another important individual in the administration of the empire was someone known as the Hajib, and that's often translated as a chamberlain, meaning the person responsible for the royal household. But the Hajib is extremely important because this is the person that controls access to the caliph and often had his, had his ear. And in this area as well, the role of the Hajib belonged to one family, and that was Arabi ibn Yunus and later on his son Fadl. And they served all the Abbasid caliphs from the first to Harun al-Rashid V. Now, as you might expect, anyone with that close access to the ruling family 
had a lot of power, and they often ended up competing against the vizier. And so we had intrigues between them, and the relative influence, the balance of power between these two individuals, fluctuated based on their personal relationships with the caliph, or in particular, powerful family members, especially the wives and mothers around the caliph. So the hajib could, and very often did, bring about the downfall of the vizier, and vice versa. Now, this Arabi ibn Yunus, however, is worth just talking about for a moment, reveals a lot about the way Abbasid society worked. Arabi began life as a slave, and he was sold several times because of his reputation as a troublemaker. He eventually ended up as the possession of the governor of Medina, who was related to the Caliph al-Mansur. Well, Arabi had a gift for poetry, and so as we talked about these nightly soirees they would have with poetic uh, recitations, that brought him to the attention of the caliph, who set him free and brought him to his court. He was then given authority over part of the building of Baghdad, the construction, and he grew rich, selling off real estate to people, again using his influence, at a time when everyone was jockeying to get the real estate close to the seat of power, as close as you could get to the, to the caliph and his palace. Now, it was Arabi who built the Palace of Eternity which would be the the caliph's uh, residence. And so in his life, we see an example of the kind of upward mobility that was possible in this society. Somebody who begins as a slave, gets sold from place to place, isn't really even a good slave. He's a troublemaker, but is able to get job and then to parlay that job using investment and finance uh, to eventually become really the most powerful guy in the caliphate uh, besides the caliph himself. And what's particularly important is the thing that distinguishes him, the thing that really sets him free and sets him on this path of power is his ability with the arts, particularly the spoken word, poetry. It was so valuable at that time that you could really parlay this into a fortune. Well, talking about Al-Mansur, we can see that his accumulation of power was a, it was a golden moment for the talented and the ambitious of the empire. And so this was a, a chance to get ahead. And so although the, the Shia had embraced the Abbasid revolution as a victory for their side, it soon became clear to them that the designation of the prophet's somewhat minor uncle, Abbas, as the, the source of legitimacy was not going to be a temporary thing. I mean, they didn't intend to move the leadership over to uh, one of the Shia. In fact, the Shia soon went from becoming a useful tool to the Abbasids to being the single biggest threat to Abbasid legitimacy. Now, the descendants of Ali became al-Mansur's targets. In fairness to the Caliph, he preferred to bribe, to buy people off rather than to kill them, but when that didn't work, he was willing to have people killed. And so for those members of the House of Ali who submitted to the Abbasids, they were set up very comfortably in Baghdad. They got palaces, they got access to the Caliph. For those who didn't, well, this became another chapter in the long Shiite history of betrayal and persecution. Well, it didn't take long for this to come to a head. In the year 762, this was only 12 years after the Abbasid Revolution, which had succeeded with the support of the Shia, there was an uprising led by two of the descendants of Ali. These were the brothers, 
Hamid ibn Abdullah, who was known by the nickname or the honorific Anafs Azakiyah, which is the pure soul, and his brother Ibrahim. And is typical with uh, Shiite leadership, he was a, a Muhammad, was a charismatic and somewhat mystical character who had been chosen as a leader by the Hashemiyah. Remember we talked about the Hashemiyah earlier, who were based in Kufa. Well, he staged a rebellion against the Abbasids in Medina. His brother, Ibrahim, led a rebellion in the city of Basra, which was the very important port in southern Iraq. Now, they were hopelessly outnumbered by the Abbasid forces, but they refused to submit and went down in glorious fashion, again joining the ranks of the very famous Shiite martyrs, and this just helped to build this history again. So had there been any illusion that the Abbasid revolution was going to be a Shiite movement or an ally of the Shia, this was forever dashed. And so the antagonism between the Shia and the Caliphate began again, even as much as the Abbasid revolution had seemed like it was a victory for the Shia initially. Having set up and organized a very powerful and effective state, the Abbasids next had a turn to the issue of succession, who would follow the caliph. As we've mentioned before, Arab society never had a tradition of primogeniture, meaning that the oldest son automatically inherits from the father. And we talked about how in Bedouin society, leaders were chosen from a consensus of the elders in the tribe. Well, beginning with the Umayyads, we essentially have a hereditary dynasty, which means that leadership does pass within the same family from father to son. But it is still up to the father, the caliph, to determine uh, which of his sons will succeed him, or in many cases, which brother would succeed him. The early caliphs designated their own successors and put them in intensive training to ensure the mantle of leadership. This still didn't guarantee that they took power. Once the caliph is dead, he's no longer there to ensure that his will is followed. Now, in Europe, one became king by having the pope crown them, often by force. They'd just go to the pope and force him to crown someone. In Islam, there was no similar coronation or designation ceremony. Remember, the caliph is the highest official in the Muslim community. There isn't a separate religious order to which he is subject, so there is no one like a pope or a religious official that he needs to go to for approval. In fact, there was something much more personal, the baya, in which the subjects would come before the new leader and pledge loyalty, the male subjects. In the tribe, this had been all the males of the tribe, but now when we're talking about a huge empire, it would be key leaders in the, in the empire, in the state, would come forward and pledge to the new caliph. Typically, only the senior members of society got to do that, but then they would go out and have other people pledge to them on behalf of the caliph. Nowadays, in Islamic monarchies, like in Saudi Arabia or in Jordan, a, a crown prince is specifically designated while the king is still alive, so we know who the inheritor is going to be. In the caliphate, even though the caliph designates which of his sons he wants to take over, um, the reality of who actually gets to take over is influenced a lot by the people who are left behind when the caliph dies. Because this baya has to take place and people have to come forward and pledge their loyalty, 
the key officials, particularly the Chamberlain and the Vizier, uh, but especially the Chamberlain, is very influential in this because remember, this is the person who controls access to the royal palace. And so they can control who you pledge your loyalty to. And so, for example, Rabbi Ibn Yunus, who we talked about, was instrumental in assuring the secession of caliphs. When al-Mansur finally died and there was fear that one of the other sons might take the leadership from al-Mahdi, who was supposed to be designated as the ruler, what the Chamberlain actually did was he kept the news of the caliph's death secret because al-Mahdi was actually out of town. He was in, in Iran, in Persia at the time. He marshaled the key officials, particularly the military forces, and it was very important to keep their loyalty, and this was done by bribes. And so he paid enormous bribes to the military. In some cases, it was two or three years worth of extra wages as a bribe to stay loyal and not to rebel. And then he lined up the key officials, the key power holders in the empire, had them come in and pledge the baya to the correct person and ensure that the right uh, son became the caliph. And despite the challenges, uh, Rabbi Ibn Yunus was very successful in making sure that al-Mahdi got to become the new caliph, and he ruled for 10 years. However, this was not always the case. Later on, it would become far more common that each of the remaining sons had their own uh, various entourages, cliques of followers, people who had attached themselves to them, and particularly these were led by the mothers of these various sons. Important to remember that we're talking about a society with polygamy, and so many of the remaining sons of the caliph would have different mothers, and they're, of course, looking for power for their faction. And by allying with the vizier, with the chamberlain, by key military officials, they were able to put uh, their choice for the caliph into power, in many cases, in not the person that the caliph actually wanted. Al-Mahdi's 10-year reign was not particularly auspicious and hasn't been remembered for much, although he did succeed in solidifying the caliph's religious authority. It was during his time that he ruled that the caliph had the ultimate authority to define religious orthodoxy and declare what was heresy, what was haram, and what was allowed. And this allowed him to launch a very wide-scale inquisition against what he considered to be heretics. Uh, Despite this, however, he did not go after the Shia. He actually tried to reconcile with the Shia. Well, Ahmadi died, and he was succeeded by his two sons in order, the order he had designated. Al-Hadi, who lasted only for one year, and it was a year of constant rebellions and intrigues. After he died, he was succeeded by his younger brother, Harun, who is known by his reign name Harun al-Rashid, meaning Harun the Rightly Guided. Now, Harun al-Rashid, the fifth caliph, is probably the most famous. It's the name that is, is most well-known, particularly in Europe. His name became synonymous with the peak of Abbasid power, with the glories of Abbasid power, the military and economic power. And he is the caliph who is immortalized, so to speak, in the Arabian Nights tales, along with his vizier, Jafar. Now, we see Jafar often uh, portrayed as an evil guy, but he was the very powerful Barmakid vizier. Now, the reason that Jafar is probably remembered in literature as being evil is because Harun Rashid, uh, later in his reign, 
essentially became jealous of the power of the vizier and his family and, and purged them. He had Jafar stripped from office and everything taken away from him. Now, this appears to be completely the whim of the caliph trying to show his power, but we can see how this has come down to us in popular literature as Jafar being the guy who was out to get Aladdin and finally uh, the caliph stands up against him. Despite his reputation and his fame, Harun al-Rashid actually didn't really want to become caliph. He was known to be very shy and was not interested in the power. And it's said that he was pushed to this by his Barmakid supporters and particularly his mother, who was a former slave and concubine, al-Khazuran. And it's said that she is the one who really pushed him. And it's rumored that she had her other son, Al-Hadi, killed off in his first year as caliph to make room for Harun, who she thought she could control much better. Although we can't verify whether this is true or not, it's very typical and in keeping with the spirits of the time. Beyond the somewhat fictionalized Harun al-Rashid, historians are divided on the real impact of the actual Harun. In reality, he did not do that much and was not that great of a leader. However, the 23 years in which he ruled were the golden age of Abbasid power. It was a time of relative peace and stability by standards of this time. There were still rebellions in Khorasan, the base of military power, which would continuously rebel, and the, the Umayyad Syria had to be subdued. But Basically, things settled down, and the economic, intellectual, scientific, and cultural glories of the empire really take off during this time. So Harun is known primarily for the era in which he lived. The time of Harun al-Rashid was certainly the peak of Abbasid glory and the golden age of the Abbasid power. Whether he was responsible for that or not is not sure. However, the greatest act of Harun al-Rashid was definitely the establishment of Beit al-Hikmah, or the House of Wisdom as it's known. This began as a library, but this developed into the unrivaled center of scholarship in the world. It was like a national library, plus university, research center. I mean, this was really the intellectual center of what was a tremendous intellectual revolution and renaissance. Now, that took some time to develop. When he established Beit al-Hikmah, it was essentially a storehouse for manuscripts. It was a place where translation went on. It took time to develop into what it is. But again, the name Harun al-Rashid is associated with this place, which is at the, the epicenter of the Islamic Golden Age. The thing that historians focus more on about Harun is something that started out uh, in his mind as a way of keeping the peace. Uh, he had seen the way there was fighting between brothers for control of the caliphate. I mean, he saw what happened between him and his brother, and he probably knew more about the intrigues that went on. So he decided uh, that he would establish a contract between his two sons before he died, a very elaborate division of power. We'll talk about that in another installment, but essentially what happened was splitting power between two sons did not bring about peace, it brought about civil war, and that led to a splintering of the caliphate from which it never completely recovered. Now, the last and final point about the Abbasid era that we want to mention is this was the first time that the Islamic empire and the caliphate would not be the same thing. As we discussed earlier, 
uh, the Abbasids overthrew the Umayyads and drove them out of Syria. However, Abbasid control never reached past Tunisia in the west. And the last remaining of the Umayyad princes, Abdul Rahman, actually escaped and went all the way to Spain. And he established what was an Umayyad emirate at that time in Spain. It will eventually come on to claim itself as being a rival caliphate. But in any case, it was separate and not under the control of the Abbasids. At the same time, Morocco, which is the furthest western portion of uh, the Islamic world in North Africa, essentially broke off from the Abbasids and did not acknowledge control to them. So for the first time we have a caliphate, which is great and powerful, but does not control all of the Islamic world. And this is going to begin a trend that is going to continue throughout the rest of Islamic history, that we essentially now have separate, separate dynasties, separate states within the Islamic world. So as you can see, the Abbasid Empire is not the perfect golden age that it's made out to be. Uh, Abbasid power is a bit weaker than what it appears to be, and it will grow weaker as time goes on. But this is truly the time when the flourishing of the arts, the sciences, the intellectual achievements are really going to come to power. And what we think of as the Islamic Golden Age is really associated with Baghdad and the Abbasid Empire. And that's what we're going to be talking about a lot in the future, the fruits of this great empire. So thank you so much for staying with us. It's been a pleasure. Please let us know what you think, and we hope to see you again soon. Thank you. Goodbye. Masalama.